Okay, everybody ready? Sooner we start, the sooner we can get out. Not that you want to get out, but I, I'm only here till tomorrow morning, so I've got to do a little more sightseeing of Birmingham since I haven't been here in 15 years, so make sure I have enough time. I want to, uh, I want to play for you all uh, this video. Hopefully it'll work. I've, I've te- is the sound up? Okay. See if I can make this work. Hey, everybody. As you know, uh, about 11 months ago, last February, we got word at Deeper Life that one of our church members, Alicia Gray, had been arrested and charged with um, a sexual relationship with one of her students. She's a high school teacher here in Mobile. And we decided then and there that the degree of her guilt and innocence would not be a deciding factor on how, how we loved her and how much we loved her. And so we decided to rally around them, and we knew that was the right thing to do. And so over the last 11 months, it's been an amazing thing to watch as Alicia has had her identity redefined in the context of uh, the fact that she's a daughter of God and she's fully loved no matter what she does. In talking with Alicia's lawyer, uh, Chris and Alicia decided a few months ago to a plea deal. And so they agreed to plead out uh, for time for her. And so this morning, uh, a sentence was handed down, and a number of us were able to be there at the courtroom for her sentencing. And in that moment, Alicia got to make a statement to the judge before he sentenced her that, honestly, I have to tell you, was one of the most powerful things I've ever heard in my life. Alicia's statement preached the gospel. It showed the power of grace and how grace has saved her and how the love of the Father has saved her life. In that statement, she apologized to the young man involved in that relationship and his family, and she talked about what she wants to see the Lord do there. So after the sentencing, uh, I was able to sit down with Alicia and get an interview with her on video. We had talked about this beforehand. She wanted to do this. We want you to hear Alicia's heart. We want you to hear what God has done and her life in this last 11 months. Here's Alicia Gray. Hmm. I actually just explained that to some of my in-laws on the way here. Um, that is something I, of course, I'm very sorry for my selfish actions and, and the choices that I made out of insecurity and hurts that I felt myself. Um, and I'm sorry for those, and so thankful that God has changed me and shown me my identity of Jesus Christ to where I won't make those same selfish decisions and hurt other people. Um, so because that joy that He's given me and that changed identity, I no longer have to feel shame about the person I once was, and I will never be again because I know who I am in Jesus. It's one of those things of peace and rest, which are words we throw around a lot, but... God really gives us overwhelming peace when you know who you are and you know that you don't have to do something to make God happy at you. You don't have to perform for other people. And because um, I have, I've had a lot of advice throughout this that people need to see me cry more, they need to see me fall apart. And my body sometimes makes me think, well, shouldn't I be a mess right now? Shouldn't I have to do this? But um, God just lets that peace fall and gives me that security of knowing. I'm just not that person anymore. And I don't have to live the way I used to live because it was different, because I did. I had insecurities. I I had pain in my own heart and a void that I thought I needed to feel through attention and all kinds of other things. And that void was just 
needing Jesus and having absolutely no lack. He completely fills everything and makes me secure in who I am, happy in who I am, and makes it where He's the only person I want to please. And the great thing is I don't have to do anything to please Him because when God sees me, He just sees Jesus. Jesus absolutely finished work on the cross, and He is very happy of me. The statement I made in court today, and I'd like to say to everyone who didn't hear it in fullness, is that I just want to say this in regards to the victim and the family and to anyone who's been hurt through this. I want to apologize for my inappropriate and selfish and very hurtful actions. Selfish really is the word. I acted out on my own insecurities without thought or concern for anyone else's well-being. I realize I've hurt many people, and I also realize the implications of what I've done and the possible difficulties it can cause for people who've been hurt. You know, bitterness, anger, fear, anxiety, depression, insecurity, and so on. I mean, and all those things were things that led up to my behavior, so I don't wish that on anyone else. Um, complete healing is needed for you to be able to walk in um, the grace that God gives. And I apologize for what I've done. The person I was a year ago is gone and changed forever thanks to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and God our Father and the renewed mind that He's given me. Everyone who's been hurt is constantly in my prayers. I pray that my unwarranted actions and the hurt it has caused will not have a hold on anyone's lives. I pray for peace, healing, and restoration. And my ultimate prayer is, Your kingdom come, your will be done, God. Take this situation that should have never, ever happened and provide healing and rest to anyone who has been hurt. Um, Jesus has brought me to a place of peace in which I'm ready for the consequences that should befall me. He's shown me the continued difficulty that people would experience should this case go to trial. So I had no desire to drag anyone through that or require people who have been hurt to have to testify publicly or hear the testimonies. Thankfully, God presented another option in which I can confess my actions alone without requiring others to have to endure that. I confess my sin and ask forgiveness from each person involved, anyone who's been hurt or touched by this, whether small or big, it's all the same. Hurt is hurt. I don't expect that the forgiveness might happen. I understand the implications of pain and bitterness that I've caused. You're completely justified to feel that way, but I do pray that each of you be free of the pain and bitterness, anger, anxiety, whatever you feel. Those are not things that are from God. God doesn't want that for you. He didn't want the situation to happen, but thank God He uses the hurts of others. He redeemed me, and He's placed it in my heart to just glorify Him. And I pray that He uses this situation to heal all those involved. God's in the business of loving people and restoring lives. Nothing compares to His great love. Though there are several people who have been victim to the situation, all those who have been hurt. It should have never happened to you, but God still makes beauty from ashes. He can restore your lives that have been broken because I chose to act out of selfishness and hurt people. I continue to pray that the healer of all healers can give you freedom from the pain you've experienced. I will ask my friends, family, and church congregation to keep you in prayer for complete healing, peace, and restoration. Grace and peace be with you.
Um, any thoughts? Come on, let's let's hear them. I'm, I'm going to try to fix this while you guys are doing that. Okay, so. Okay, so she never apologized. Hmm? Okay. I think fairly close, because she had just gone to court to, to, uh, to enter the plea. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm listening. I'm just. Um, how many? I mean, if you listen to, if you just sort of listen generally to what she's saying, I mean, you know, from a theological perspective, it's you know we're not. It's not necessarily bad, right? I mean, in the sense that that uh, in general, that she's talking about. Uh, you know, we're, we're not defined by, uh, you know, we're defined by Jesus and, and who we, we are. And so, again, you listen to it maybe at first and you're like, hmm. But then, I don't know, I don't know if it's just me, but I just felt uneasy throughout the whole time watching it. Now, so here's the thing. I mean, how many of you think, and again, this is just, I understand these are just guesstimates, but how many of you think that she's earnest as she's speaking here? That she, she believes what she's saying? Okay, okay. How many think she's just being deceitful? Okay, a little bit. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, here's, here's just some thoughts. Number one, it, it talks about the, it, it shows the importance of really solid um, discipleship. Uh, I, the more I've watched this, I've watched this quite a few times, um, and I think, I hate to say it, this is in Alabama too. So it is not intentional. I'm not, I don't pull things just from Alabama and, and you know, because um, this pastor emailed me, because I wrote about this, because I was so bothered by it. Um, but, you know, the, the thing is this, um, good discipleship in this type of situation is really needed. And I get the sense, and again, I don't know a lot about behind the scenes, but just from what I'm hearing, I'm thinking, man, this person's not being served well. It's going back to that toolbox, and I don't think that pastor has the right tool. He's trying to nail a nail with a screwdriver. And, and this is what we're seeing. Um, behavior that is very concerning. I think somebody who said that it was all about her. Yeah, I mean, that big picture in a 30,000 foot view is, yeah, I mean, it's all about me. How many times does she talk about the victim? She mentions, it's interesting, when she mentions the victim, it's mentioned in the context of everybody else too who's been hurt. Okay? Um, which, is, which is concerning. But one of the things that I think is, is a bother, and I think we run into this in a lot of churches, is she talks about the fact that she's now a new person in Jesus. And there are many who would believe that if you're, uh, who buy this uh, belief that if you're a new person in Jesus, you're, you're not the old person anymore, you're now rest, restored, and I would never do this again. I would never do this because there's like, almost like you don't have to worry about this anymore because I'm a new person. Okay, how many are concerned with that type of belief? Why? Somebody tell me why. Yes. 
Yeah, you know, it's not, it's not our job. But were you say? I was just going to say, like Peter made that same mistake, saying, "Lord, I'll never leave you." Yeah. Yeah, look what he did. Yeah, it's it's not my job or your job to. It's not within our jurisdiction to determine um, uh, whether she's been justified. I mean, that's the, the the condition of her soul is the jurisdiction of God. However, that doesn't mean. Just assume for a moment that she is she is a new person in Jesus, and the blood of Jesus covers all unrighteousness, everything. That doesn't mean, though, that this is a person that is not going to struggle with sin. In fact, if you really understand the gospel, I think those who become Christians and who are new creatures actually know and acknowledge and understand better than maybe others the depravity and darkness of their own heart. And that we are capable, understanding sin nature, we're capable of doing anything. But here, it's more than that she's just capable of doing it. She has actually done it. And so, I would hope that somebody who's getting good counsel is going to say, you know, I am, I'm a Christian. First of all, I don't think they would make a video, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I understand the darkness of my own heart. And I understand that, that, uh, I'm capable of doing anything. And I actually have, I've done something. And just because I'm a Christian doesn't change. It may change my, my position before God, but it doesn't excuse the consequences of my sin and my offenses and the, the fact that I have I have very, I've decimated lives. Um, and so I think that that's really important to know because I think many times I encounter churches who go, well, this person's become a Christian. Stop being so judgmental. Where's the grace? And you have to know how to respond to that. Because if you don't respond to that well, these types of people make their way into the church and maybe they had good intentions to begin with, but they still struggle. I mean, Paul struggles. We see that oftentimes. He specifically talks about that inward struggle. And this person is going to struggle. And, and when, we, when it almost seems like she has been convinced that that is the past you, and you don't have to worry about it. Uh, yes, you were going to say something. Yeah, I, I find that uh, oftentimes uh, sex offenders, um, sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's not. Uh, but they, they gain sympathy by portraying themselves in many ways as the victims. And she's doing this even if she doesn't really know it. Uh, she's doing she, I had insecurities. I had a pain in my heart and a, a void I thought I needed to fill through the attention um, and all kinds of other things. Um, she's saying, I'm, basically, I'm, I'm the victim here. And that's really dangerous. And, and churches, let me tell you something, we buy that stuff. We go, oh, yeah, you're right. You were, you were, you know, you had, sin had a whole grip on you, and you were you know, chasing after it, and you fell. And, and some of it may be true. I don't know. But the reality is this. Uh, she is not the victim here. She has victimized somebody, somebody that she barely even acknowledges in this video. Um, and again, I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be tough on her. I, I think it's really bad counsel and, and shepherding she's receiving. Um, that has that maybe she was she would gravitate towards that anyway, but when the church and church leadership uh, communicate that and and shepherd her in that way she she goes full throttle in that direction um, you know she makes a statement uh, very bothered it 's all the same hurt is hurt again, ask yourself if you were the parent of the the uh, there was a 15-year-old boy, whether how you'd respond to hearing 
that statement. I, I, I certainly would respond very well. All is hurt is hurt. Um, and then this, this uh, you know, I talk about the understand, I understand response. She says, I understand the pain and bitterness I have caused. Does she? Because I think if she really understood it, she wouldn't be making this video. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, so using her to show, look at God's grace, and we're going to use this. Um, and, you know, if, ask yourself, if, if you were, let's say you were, let's take, a, forget it's a sexual abuse case. Um, think about somebody who's committed a murder, has murdered somebody's child, and getting up on a video, doing this exact same video, and saying, I understand you know, the, uh, the pain and bitterness. How would, how would we respond? We'd be like, no, you don't. In fact, you'd be so disgustingly offended that that person would even attempt to communicate that. You have no clue what it would be like to be a parent of somebody who's been killed. You have no clue what it is to be a parent of somebody who's been sexually abused. You have no clue how a 15-year-old boy is processing this and how this 15-year-old boy will probably be processing this for the many years of his life. Even if factually it might have been consensual, it wasn't. That's why you're entering a plea to a criminal case. Um, and then the, uh, I wrote here the, the I was inappropriate response. You know, it's, we use this language. At no time does she ever use the word abuse or even refer to her behavior as criminal. It's I was selfish. Um, I mean, she was convicted of engage, the, the official crime was engaging in a sexual act or deviant sexual intercourse for the minor student. And she defines that as inappropriate. Um, you know, again, not, not understanding exactly. And, and again, I, don't, I think the, the counsel she's received has played into that. How does he refer to it in the introduction? Okay. Well, that's actually good. I hadn't thought about that. I, he, how does he define this, this situation as what? He calls it a relationship. Let me tell you something. When an adult violates the law by sexually contacting a minor, that is not a relationship. It's a crime. That's a good point. Yeah, that's probably that's a that's probably a very good point. This this interesting enough the the, the sort of the background of this is is that this uh, this young man and their family did not go to the same church. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One day I'm gonna be doing this, and this pastor will be sitting. That'll be fun. Um, any other any other thoughts? Next are creepy. Yeah, probably not from either of those two, though. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, again, ask yourself. This is this is what we don't do well. Is if you were, has the church even considered the impact that posting this video and the content of this video may have may have on this other family? Yeah. 
You know. And if this family, think about this, if this family watches this and says, expresses to this pastor, I think that's ridiculous. I can't believe you did that. That was very hurtful. I'm willing to guess that one of the, a response may be something like this. You don't believe in God's grace? Why aren't you believing that? I can't believe, well, let's, let's sit down. We're, maybe we can counsel you. Um, maybe we can pray for you. Yeah. You see how manipulative it is. And sometimes I, I wonder if they even realize it. And then the last thing I was just going to share with this is, uh, and this is sort of subtle, but I call it the make me feel, the make the victim feel guilty response. Um, she, uh, she says, I pray that each of you be free of the pain, bitterness, anger, anxiety. These are not things from God. So what she has communicated, and she probably doesn't even realize it, what she's communicated is that you all, if you're feeling upset and angry about this, um, you shouldn't be. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to pray that you can get over this bitterness and anger. Again, if I'm, if I'm the family or the victim and I'm hearing this, um, really? That you're now saying in a subtle way, it's not from God. Your anger is not from God. Maybe my anger is from God, first of all. But second of all, the fact that the offender, I mean, again, take it back to a, something more extreme, a, a, a murderer. And a murderer is looking at the family and saying, you know, I pray that each of you will be free from the pain and bitterness and anger, because uh, that's not from God. Uh, very, very hurtful uh, and very dangerous. I'm, I don't know, and, and I've recently seen there's all these follow-up videos, and maybe it's after my exchange with this pastor, who was not very happy with me. Uh, when I wrote him, and I wrote him back a few times and laid it out for him, and then I never heard from him again. So maybe they made a couple other videos to answer that. I don't know. It should be interesting. Uh, but, but you know, I, the reality is, I show this for a couple of reasons. Not to trash these people. I, I don't know these people at all. Uh, they've posted it on YouTube, so it's not like I've gotten some private video. I mean, they're, they're proud of it, so I'm fine to talk about it as well. Uh, but I show this for two reasons. Number one is to see a female offender... And to hear some of the language that both female offenders and male offenders use inside a faith community. That can be really subtle. I remember showing this for the first time to a group uh, a few years ago. And the pastor's wife came up to me afterwards and she was in tears. And she said, you know, I was watching that and about halfway through, she goes, I, I was feeling really guilty because I'm hearing what she's saying. And it sounds sort of good, but I just was so bothered by it. And the fact that I was so bothered by it, I, start, <clears throat> I started feeling guilty. Like, I can't believe you're judging this woman. She's, you know, God's graces. And then also she, she goes, it hit me towards the end that maybe the reason I'm, being, I'm so bothered by what I'm watching, maybe that's the Holy Spirit. That's not going to give me a peace in watching something like this. And she goes, when I realized that, I was really felt liberated. Like, oh, okay, yeah, it is, there is something amiss by this. And, um, and so I think that it's learning... Again, seeing it, talking through it, you'll be with certain, and I, that's why I show this, because sometimes I'll show it to groups, and I don't get necessarily the same responses. I get a, sometimes people in the, in the group that are like, well, wait a minute, I, I think you guys are being harsh on this person. And that's fine. That's, these are really good conversations to have. Um, the second reason is because I think it shows the importance of how churches respond to this. I really, and again, I, I don't want to judge this church because I don't know anything about it except for what I see in this video. But what I see in this video demonstrates to me enough to know that this church did not respond well to this. And I don't know the impact it will have on the victim, but I'm, I'm concerned about the impact 
it has on her too. Because I think she's going to I think she's going to go in this direction thinking everything's wonderful. And what happens the very next time she begins uh, feeling those urges to connect with a minor again? Because I think she will. And what's she going to do? I thought I was a new creature. Oh, my goodness. And do I tell the pastor? Oh, no, I don't, I don't dare tell the pastor because I'm this new creature. I'm not supposed to have these struggles anymore. And so oftentimes people like this will keep it quiet until it's too late again. Um, or the pastor, they'll come to the pastor, and the pastor sometimes will keep it quiet because their narrative is not working itself out the way they want it to. And that's going to be a terrible witness, so we've got to keep this contained. Uh, bad, bad response. If we can equip our churches and our leadership to respond well to something like this, and that doesn't mean you kick this woman out and have nothing to do with her. Absolutely not. But you certainly aren't on the day that she's entering a plea, posting a video on YouTube and celebrating and hugging her. And I just don't know how you have served this person well uh, with regard to this. So it's, again, just an example of the need to, to understand the dynamic. I think if he understood, and based on my email exchanges, I really realized he didn't understand. Um, and he doesn't seem to be really willing to understand. But if you understand the, the, the dynamics involved here, you pr- hopefully and perfectly would respond a little bit different. You'd still shepherd her, Absolutely but in a much different way, in a way that would be much healthier, in a way that would be less uh, hurtful and, and potentially re-traumatizing to the victim, um, and in a way that would help her see this situation in the reality that it is so that she can really, really spend the rest of her life working on this and realizing that that's always going to be a danger for her and that the church is there to help her, but it's to hold her accountable and to counsel her and getting her, maybe plugging her in with a qualified counselor to be able to assist with that. Um, and, and that's really helpful. And that's why it's good that we have counselors here. I think it's really important for churches to have relationships with, with really good qualified counselors. I'm not a, and this will probably get me in trouble here, but I'll just say this. I'm not a huge fan of nuthetic counseling. And I'm really not a huge fan of nuthetic counseling in relation to sexual abuse uh, counseling. I, I, I just am not. And I think if you are embracing that type of counseling, which is fine, just make sure, make sure you get some, some training and assistance on, on, uh, on dealing with these types of cases. Yes. A new set. It's like another word for it maybe. And there's a big spectrum. Biblical counseling, which is, you know, biblical counseling is good. I'm, I'm a son of a clinical psychologist. So I have a little bit of knowledge of counseling. But, but um, where a, a true... Like Jay Adams is, a, is sort of the father of nuthetic counseling, and, and he would say basically, and the counselors correct me if I'm wrong, uh, would basically say, don't go outside the four corners of Scripture in your counseling. Everything you need in your counseling is right here in the Bible. Um, and I'm just going to tell you that, that I, I've met, I, I met a lot of, uh, when we did an investigation a couple, few years ago with Bob Jones University, a lot of the students had gone through biblical counseling there, and it was traumatizing. Uh, because um, they, they just weren't equipped. Again, going back to that toolbox, those counselors weren't equipped to deal with a trauma situation. Um, so, and again, I'm not here to trash a ter- certain type of counselor. I'm just saying when we talk about resources, make sure you have a wide variety of resources. Make sure that you're plugging uh, your, whether it's your victims or even alleged perpetrators, with really solid, experienced counselors. Uh, who, who know what they're doing. Otherwise, what happens, especially with perpetrators, I've seen this, is they know exactly they're a step ahead of the counselor. And they deceive the counselor, 
to the point where the counselors, after a certain period of time, and this is not just biblical, I mean, any counselor who's not qualified, will say, okay, I think you're good to go. And they go, wow, I can tell people my counselor has, has said I'm fine. And it's really, really deceiving because they're not fine. Uh, and then when you say, you know what, I don't think you're fine. I think you, then you're, you're again, you're back to the judge being the judgmental one. Like, can't you just forgive this person? They've gone to counseling. Um, so just, it's really, really important to plug in. My main point is plug into really good, make sure you have resources. And you all in, in Birmingham do. I mean, you know, it's more difficult when I'm in a more rural area to talk about really good qualified counseling. There is more and more. Um, we were just talking about Skype counseling that uh, is, is available in certain regards. And, and, and sometimes that's really helpful for people who just don't have a really good qualified counselor in their, in their area. Um, I have a friend of mine who uh, runs an organization where he will connect abuse survivors uh, who don't have the means uh, and who may live in areas that they just can't find a good counselor. He'll connect them with counselors around the country, primarily through Skype counseling. And he's negotiated with them to either do it at a, a minimum or uh, no cost. Uh, and because so many abuse survivors, they just don't have the means. And so if they don't have the money, if it's either to pay rent or to get counseling, they got to pay rent. And so one of the things I think ultimately I'd love to see in the church in the long term is, is we really be able to create some of the best counseling centers, most qualified counseling centers. We're beginning to see that more and more um, that can provide this type of counseling and, and, and help for little to no cost to people who can't afford it. Um, because I hate when I hear, I feel so um, frustrated when I hear from survivors who are in dire need of counseling and they have no means whatsoever for it. Um, and, you know, counselors have to, if you're working, you've got to be paid. So it's, it's just a, but big point is make sure you're connected to, to good counselors. And I think if, if this church had been better connected with resources and training and all of that, we might have avoided this. Uh, the very fact that they put up a second video makes me a little even more concerned. But, you know, yes, sir. Mm. Yeah, you know, we, we look at Scripture whenever you... When, when Jesus talks about children in Scripture, um, especially when, for those who hurt children, we talked about last night the fact that, you know, he has very harsh words uh, to those who hurt children. Um, what does he say? Yeah, millstone, large stone, round your neck, throw in the ocean. That's pretty... When you think about it, as I said last night, I mean... Who's making that comment? Who's saying that? The God of the universe is saying that. And he's saying it in a day and age and culture where children were talking about children being devalued. They were a little bit valued, just a little bit above the slaves. The abuse of children, the physical and sexual abuse of children in the times of Jesus was was rampant. Um, And he's making this revolutionary statement. I mean, I, I don't think we grasp how revolutionary that statement was in the context of the times. Um, and other comments he made about children. Whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name welcomes he who sent me. What does that mean? I think one of the things it means is that you demonstrate your love for God and, and your value and your view of God in how you are with little ones. Again, that's a revolutionary statement made in those times. And it's interesting, in the early church, in the early times... The Christians were some of the, the most vocal and active child advocates in the early, early times. I think a lot of it has to do with, with that, with the words of Jesus. And they, they took that to heart. 
And then over time, somewhere we got lost, and I, I think oftentimes now, at least the work we deal with, we see that Christians are, we've come almost full circle. We're not leading in that. Why are some of the greatest child advocates that I know, not all, but why are some of the greatest child advocates I know, people who would probably lay down their life for children, uh, the most secular, liberal folks I've ever met in my life? And I'm like, man, where's, where's the church? Shouldn't we be on the front line? Shouldn't we be known as the ones that uh, will advocate? And it's more than just advocating for that child to be born. But what about after that child to be, is born? Many children who are born from, uh, for in, in homes where the, children was nev- the child was never wanted or maybe been considered to be aborted uh, end up being abused and neglected. Um, and where are we for those kids? So that's a little different direction. But I just, um, yeah, so I, I, this is just a helpful, to me, just a helpful exercise of watching. Let's hear a female offender. We talked about female offenders. Let's watch it. And to realize that this whether she knows it or not, uh, there's some danger here. And, and I don't think this church has really recognized that. And you're right. If this had been a male offender, I, it's a good question. I don't, I don't think we'd see this video. I don't think the church would have put the video. Uh, and with the nice flowery music in the background and, and the rooster crowing. But uh, yes. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, you, you would, you're right. If you're watching it, you're going, just like that woman that came to me afterwards, she was starting to feel guilty uh, by feeling this way. And part of it was because of the language and the words she was using and that she wasn't necessarily tracking with the words and feeling like, man, what's wrong with me? Why am I not tracking what, what she's saying? Because what she's saying sounds so good in many ways. Yeah, that's great. Any other questions about this? Okay. Um, I want to spend the last uh, little bit of time together. We may not be able to get this finished because I'm going to get you out by, uh, by noon. Um, I really want to go through uh, just, we've talked about offenders, talked about the danger of offenders. We've also talked about the need to sort of change a work towards developing, changing the, the DNA of the church as it relates to child protection, creating a, a child safer church, child safer community. Um, and it's also not just child safer, but I'm really a big proponent of, are we creating safe environments for our survivors? You know, are abuse survivors comfortable in our churches sharing when they feel like it and how much they feel like it, uh, their own abuse stories? Or are they feeling, are they suffering in silence in our churches? We have to, we have to serve our children by protecting them, and we have to serve the, the survivors amongst us by in affirming them and making our church a safe place for them, not only safe from being further exploited, but a safe place for them to talk a safe place for them to share their own journey without feeling guilty, shamed, uh, or ignored. Um, so I want to just talk initially about um, policies, uh, child protection policies. And the child protection policy, one of the things that we're, gonna, we're developing in this certification program, the, the centerpiece of it is a manual that will help churches from A to Z develop a child protection policy. I don't think, I've never really liked, you know, people email me and say, Can, do you just have a sample policy you can give me? So we used to do that, and all of a sudden I started realizing, you know, I don't think we're doing anybody a favor. Because if they're like me, they're going to take the sample policy, slap their name on it, and say, okay, now we got a policy. We checked off the box, and we really don't know exactly what's in the policy. We've never even discussed the policy. We can just say we have the policy. So we want churches to develop their own policies. Now, we're going to walk through that church every step of the way with that manual, and we'll have a, a team leader from Grace who will help them develop that. So you're not just starting from scratch. But you're developing a policy that is focused on your particular church and your community and 
not only is it focused on that, but it's, it's, it's the result of discussion, talking about it. And through that discussion, you're going to be learning. Uh, and so when that policy is finished, the people who have developed that policy have a really good working knowledge of the, what the policy is and why, and are able to communicate that to the rest of the congregation. So when we start about talking about a policy, um, you know, what is the ultimate objective? You know, sometimes people say it's to, re- it's to reduce um, church liability. Well, that, is, that can be unobjective, but it, the question is, what's the ultimate objective? If the ultimate objective of your policy or procedures is to protect your church from getting sued, you are got the wrong policy, and you've got the wrong perspective. Now, insurance companies will sometimes push a policy on you, say, here's a policy. And if you, oftentimes when you look at the policies the insurance companies will give you, they do just that. Why? Because that's, the insurance companies are concerned with their insured, the church. Lawyers sometimes for churches, and I'm a lawyer. Sometimes my biggest obstacles are lawyers. Uh, lawyers will say, well, you've got to develop this policy uh, in order to protect your church. Well, okay, that might be a byproduct of the policy, but that cannot be the primary objective. Um, protect the reputation of the church. We want to be able to tell people we have a policy. Well, no, that, again, all of these, if you're looking at it, except for the last one, the focus is on the church, isn't it? Uh, it shouldn't be that. Uh, protect the reputation of the gospel. We're going to have this policy so we can protect the name of Jesus. Again, I don't think Jesus needs you and I to protect his name. That's just a guess. Uh, but protect children. Yeah, that's, that should be the objective of the policy. Now, if you have a policy that thoroughly protects the vulnerable in your church, some of these others will, will be included in that. If you have a church that, if you have a policy that thoroughly protects that, um, it will reduce the church liability. It will probably reduce premiums. Uh, it will, pro- uh, you know, protect the reputation of the church, if that's what your concern is. Um, but that's not the ultimate. The ultimate is we're going to develop a policy that protects, that best protects children, period. And sometimes that may mean that the church has to sacrifice a little bit if it means to protect the kids. And so when you're developing these policies, that should be the constant conversation amongst those who are developing it, is does this protect kids? Does this protect kids? If you're finding yourself having a lot of the part of the conversation about how is this going to impact our church or our liability or any of that, you're, you're starting to get off track. You go back to how does this protect children? Um, Consult with an independent expert as you're developing a policy for your church. Do your churches have policies? Either of your, I know that we have covenant and... Okay? Okay. Um, get an independent consultant or somebody who knows what they're doing to either help you develop it or have you do an audit or review of it. Um, because you want to make sure that your policies are developed in a way that in some form or fashion with the input of some experts. And that... That doesn't have to be us. There are other people that can do this. Uh, but just make sure you're reaching outside of your community to get that, uh, that expertise. Um, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I don't want to trash insurance providers because they do a great job. But just keep in mind the purpose of an, uh, of an insurance underwriter is to, to limit the liability of their insured, the church. Um, so they're going to approach it in, in a different way. Um, Sometimes policies, and this is the second point I make here, is insurance providers and some lawyers have a vested interest in preventing future abuse while keeping quiet about past abuse. Um, that's really, really true. 
I've had situations where a, uh, a church would, a newest situation where a church was going to, um, they had a situation with abuse, and the focus, the, the, what the lawyers told them is, listen, um, yes, we need to get help and address this abuse here. And they said, well, we don't know whether this offender who's been here for a while may have abused other people in the past. And I think we have a, a responsibility to try to find out if there are other victims out there who've never stepped forward so we can get them help. And the direction was, no, you don't. That's just good. And, and now, it's not, they make it sound nicer. They don't say, you're not going to do that. They're going to say, they paint it in a picture that says, you know, if you do that, you're going to be bringing up really painful memories for people. And it's better not to do that. Um, so they obviously maybe have been finally getting a hold of what, you know, this, this situation and maybe gotten the right help or whatever, and you bring it back up is going to be pretty traumatic. And so churches will be quiet. I gave the example last night of the, this Presbyterian church in Northern Virginia where they had this situation of abuse 10, 15 years earlier. Um, a number of people were abused and it never was dealt with correctly. And new pastor comes in years later, and as I said last night, you know that the situation has not been dealt with correctly when it's still being talked about 15 years later. So this pastor gets to the bottom of it, finds out what's going on, and decides to have a congregational meeting to finally address this issue in a healthy, direct way. The night before he uh, has this meeting, he gets a call from the insurance underwriter and who had heard about the fact that this congregational meeting was going to happen, and they said, do not have that meeting. Well, Why? Uh, this is 15 to 20 years old, leave it alone. Don't bring it back up again. And if you do bring it back up and anybody files a lawsuit against the church, uh, we will not cover you. Just putting you on notice that because you've, you've gone against what we've directed you to do. And the pastor said, I had to make a decision. I had to make a decision either to do what my insurance provider wants me to do or do what I believe God wanted me to do. And so they had the meeting. And interestingly enough, nobody filed a lawsuit. Um, because again... As it relates, if I was talking to a group of lawyers, what I would say is we have, we have so trained lawyers to try to protect liability of clients that we often actually create liability. If you, the Catholic Church is a perfect example. Victims approaching the Catholic Church over and over again, wanting them to acknowledge what had happened and to deal with it. Most victims, believe it or not, aren't after a dollar, <laughs> Catholic Church, and again, this is not limited to the Catholic Church, but you see this as a, as a significant example. Um, Catholic Church ignores them, doesn't want to talk to them. Lawyers are saying, don't talk to them. They'll go away. Don't say anything that might create more liability. Uh, all this type of stuff. And so, you know, they shut all the doors and windows and lock everything, and, and they're thinking that these victims are going to go away. And some do, sadly. But most don't. They've been through a lot worse in life. And what do they do? They end up in a lawyer's office, in a plaintiff's lawyer's office. And the next thing you know, the church is getting a demand letter. And the next thing you know, the church is now part of a lawsuit. They, by giving that counsel, actually created, in my opinion, liability. Rather than what I have found with, with survivors, more often than not, is they want the church to respond, acknowledge for the very first time what happened. Sometimes that's all they want. If you read Krista Brown's This Little Light, I mean, she ends up meeting with some of the leaders of the, of the uh, uh, Texas Baptist Convention, and all she asks for in that initial meeting, all she asks for is some, for them to help out with some counseling and a prayer garden at the SBC headquarters in, in Texas uh, on behalf of survivors of sexual abuse. That's all she asks. 
and they eventually say no. It happens time and time again. So, so I say all that to say that, that as you're developing these policies, um, who you get to give you some insight and help is really important. Because if you get a traditional sort of lawyer with looking at this with sort of a, a li- traditional uh, minimized liability uh, perspective, your policy is going to be much different than probably what it should be um, in the long run. I also think when part of developing a a good policy, and you all have the resources here, which is really, really great, uh, is contacting local law enforcement, prosecutor's offices, um, any sexual offender treatment centers. I would also maybe contact somebody at the, uh, I know you have a really good children's advocacy center here, and say, hey, we are developing a church child safeguarding or child protection policy, and we would love to get your insight. Not that they want to sit and meet with you every week to do that, but when we get a draft, could we share it with you? Just to get your insight on, on if there's something missing, whether we're, we're, we need to do something a little bit different. Because you all see this every single day. You guys are interviewing children on a regular basis. And you've seen many different types of situations, many of which, which occur in churches. We want to know, we want to, we want to learn from what you've learned from. And would you help us with that? And my hunch is that you're going to find somebody there that would be very helpful, uh, that would say, man, we've never had a church ask us for this, for this type of assistance. Absolutely. Again, again, looking outside of just yourselves when you're developing a policy that's really going to help shape, form and shape the, that DNA of the church as it goes along in developing uh, an environment that is safe for, for children and, um, and survivors. So there's sort of foundational prerequisites. Look at Jeremiah 32, 35, the protection of children from physical abuse uh, and sexual abuse, emotional abuse, this is not a quote of the, of the, of the verse. Um, is it, it's a clear command of our Lord. God says that the cruelty towards children, and this is, never entered my mind and is an abomination. That's, again, keeping that focus on the fact that we're here to protect children. And part of protecting children, don't forget, part of protecting children is identifying and confronting offenders or suspected offenders. And making sure, part of this is all about justice too. Anybody in your church who's offending a child or who you suspect is offending a child needs to be confronted by justice. And what I mean by justice is that is the, the civil, uh, civil authorities. And so you're, again, your policy should be focused on that uh, as well. Um, definitions, really important for any policy. As a lawyer, I can tell you, definitions matter. Uh, Because you're going to want your congregation and your volunteers and your employees to be really clear about what the policy is. And you don't want them going, well, that wasn't really in the definition. Okay? Um, Again, again, your policy is not going to cover every single scenario. But defining key terms, defining terms like sexual abuse or physical abuse. um, And I'm going to make this PowerPoint available to, to both churches. So just let me know. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm sorry, I can't hear it's, it's, a, it's a term of art. Yeah, sexual abuse. You know, some people may call, you know, some states define uh, various child sexual offenses as, you know, like where I came from in Florida, lewd and lascivious molestation, lewd and lascivious assault. And when you really break those down, they're, from a legal standpoint, they're just... They're all involving sexual abuse. It's just the different types of, of behaviors, different types of actions 
uh, that may make a difference as to the degree of the offense. But all of those, I think, would be under the umbrella of sexual abuse. Um, and again, it, it can be, you, you can use different terms. Sexual abuse is a term that I think is, is generally accepted. Um, but, you know, you could say sexual maltreatment of children, maltreatment of children, um, neglect, you know, but, but again, you want to have, I think it's important that you address these individually. So sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, emotional abuse. I think policies should, should inc- incorporate all of this. Uh, so if you're dealing with sexual abuse, that's great. And your church may decide, listen, we're just going to focus on sexual abuse or maybe physical abuse at this point in time. But I do think, I think it should cover. So oftentimes in my experience, all of these overlap. Very seldom have I, have I ever met somebody who was sexually abused who didn't also experience in some form or fashion either spiritual abuse or this impacted spiritually, them spiritually. Um, so oftentimes in environments where children are being uh, sexually abused, there's a lot of emotional abuse. Uh, very often a lot of crossover between physical abuse and sexual abuse. So it's really good to, to define all of these uh, so you're not just focused so much on one when there's so much overlap uh, on the other. Remember, your policy needs to protect all ages. We often, we often focus so, uh, so much, which is a good focus, on, on little ones. You know, our babies and our elementary uh, age kids, and that's really, really critical. But I also think a policy uh, should offer, uh, there should be policies that address um, various age groups. And, and various age groups have, as I said here, differing vulnerabilities. You know, a... a um, a seven-year-old is a different, vulner- different vulnerabilities than a 13 or 14-year-old. And so your policies need to be specifically addressing that. It's got to cover all of them. If we're just focused on this age group here, we've left out a large group of people who actually are oftentimes the most targeted uh, and oftentimes the most exposed to those who want to hurt them, youth pastors or, or youth volunteers. So we need to, to not only... Um, uh, do that. And, and the other thing I mentioned here too is grooming tactics. We talked a little bit earlier about grooming. Grooming tactics differ from age. So our policies need to understand that, that, that you're going to, offender is going to groom a seven-year-old much different than a 14-year-old. Uh, and so our policy again is, is needs to be comprehensive. And then training has to accompany the policy. You can have the world's best policy, but if nobody knows about it, or if your congregation has not been trained on it, and I mean repeatedly trained on it, not just one time we go, okay, it's done, move on. But this, again, becomes part of the, the fabric of your community, your, your church community. Um, that becomes, that's really where you begin to see what we were talking about earlier of, of that DNA changing is when we are training constantly on this stuff. And not only just training about the policy, but every year, what are we going to do to, to uh, provide some degree of training for those who are in our churches, for those who are parents, for those who are volunteers for the youth and, and the children. We're going to keep this issue alive uh, because that will communicate to the people of our churches that this is important. This is a priority for us and not just something that we can say we did and move on. Um, and I think, again, even though you might be focused on parents or you might be focused on volunteers, everybody in the congregation should be encouraged to attend. And let me tell you something. It's not... <laughs> And you, and you all know this. Uh, if you say, "Okay, we're going to we're going to meet tomorrow and talk about um, our child protection policy and, and child sexual abuse," you're not going to get throngs of people running to. Uh, even if you offer free food, you're probably not going to get that. 
Uh, but I will tell you this. If you, per, if you lay the, the framework and the foundation in your church before you do this, talking about this, the importance of this, and more and more people, like even take example of you all. Okay? I know this does not make up the, the congregation of both of these churches. But you know what? You all prayerfully will leave here and talk about this and be able to talk about this with other folks who weren't here. And more and more people will say, well, you know what? Maybe that is important. And then we, the church has another gathering and, and maybe more people show up. And then you have another one. And that's how you begin to you change that, that, that DNA. And then once you have a large enough group, when you're doing this training of the, the policies that you have finally developed, you're going to have a large buy-in from the congregation because they're already beginning to see the importance and need for something like this. Less coming from a guy like me and more coming from people like you who are actually friends and colleagues of those people in these churches, which is, which is really important. Um, here's a graph that I think is really important. Um, this comes from a, a researcher who talks about, uh, who's done some research and found out the, the discovered sort of preconditions of sexual abuse. And this is from a perspective of, of offenders. And the four preconditions are sort of motivation, move from motivation to internal inhibitors. Then you have external inhibitors, and then you have resistance by a child. Now I say this, we could spend the whole time talking about this. It's actually pretty fascinating, but what this means is that an offender generally, before they offend, what's, what, are the, what are the preconditions? Well, the offender might, first of all, go motivation. What's the motivation? What's the motivation for, my, for me to, to act out on a child? Um, but then you move to in, internal inhibitors. Internal inhibitors may be a guilt. I don't want to do this. I, don't, I might feel bad hurting somebody. Uh, I don't, you know any type of other internal inhibitor, but then you move to external inhibitors. If I do this, I could get caught. I could go to prison. I might get caught at church. I don't want to do that. And then the last one is resistance by a child. So the offender who goes through those first makes it through the motivation, gets beyond the internal inhibitors, gets beyond the external inhibitors, and then begins to access and maybe even attempt to abuse the child. Uh, The last one that stops it is the resistance by the child. I bring this up because I think that as you develop a policy and as you develop this, this culture within your church, you should think about this. You should think what in our policy can be put towards, uh, can, can help motivate or demotivate any offender in our congregation from even beginning to think about this. What can we do in our church, not only in our policy, but how we address this that would create some internal inhibitors? What about external inhibitors? What can we do? And how do we train our children in our church? Really, really critical. How do we train our, the children amongst us on this subject? So that if, God forbid, this offender gets through the first three, it begins to groom or even attempt to abuse this child, that we've trained and equipped our children how to resist that. Uh, whether it's by calling out to somebody, by reporting it, whether it's even by physically resisting it. There's so many different ways, but a policy should at least be addressing that in some form or fashion um, because this demonstrates an understanding, at least a limited understanding, of what goes through the minds of offenders before they act and what can stop them. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, with different, through the research, sometimes internal inhibitors does, is enough to stop. There are people out there amongst, you know, us that may struggle with being attracted to kids. But the internal inhibitors keep them from, from acting out because they know it's wrong and they keep that under control. Maybe they ask somebody to hold them accountable, whatever. 
Um, and then there are others that, that don't really do that, but they, get, they haven't acted out because they're absolutely deathly afraid of ever getting caught and going to prison. And that right there is enough for them not to, not to act out. Uh, but then there are those who make it through those, a lot of them, like the ones we've been talking about this morning, that where the resistance of the child may be the one thing that, that stops it. So we, again, have to be equipped to, to, to know how to do that. Catch the offender at the door. Um, when you're talking about uh, um, volunteers or employees, and, and even some degree church membership, uh, catch the offender. If you can catch the offender at the door. Now, like I said earlier, some of these offenders, many of these offenders have been in the church their entire lives. So they're already inside the door. That's why you can't, when we, when we go through this vetting, don't think like, okay, once you get vetted, you're good. Because a lot of them have been inside the church, um, and that becomes a, a concern. But, you know, background screening um, is, is important. Now, if all you do is background screening, um, then it's wholly, in, wholly inappropriate to just do a background screening. Think about what I said earlier. If an offender, by the time they get caught, has abused between 20 and 150 victims, your background check, criminal background check likely is not going to show anything because that means most offenders have never been caught. If your offender is a juvenile, your background check is not going to show anything because juvenile records are confidential. Um, So it can create a false sense of security. It's a good first step, but it can create a false sense of security. Um, Why? Well, number one, it assumes that the applicant's identity is truthful. Now, you might go, oh, come on, it's, of course it's it. You know, you don't know that. I mean, how do you know, uh, I make you all feel paranoid about every one of you in here, but how do you know the person next to you is really the person next to you? Um, now, we can say, okay, that's, that's sort of funny, but when you're an offender, and if you're somebody who's targeting, trying to get into a particular church, or you're somebody who's grown up in the church, a little bit more difficult in that sense, um, you're going to want to, and you know they're doing background checks, um, A, you're probably not going to try to volunteer at a place like this if you have any type of history. Um, but if you do, it's, very, it's not uncommon that somebody would at least try to, uh, to um, hide or change their identity. Um, sex abuse charges that were reduced as part of a plea bargain. You might get a criminal background check. You might get a, a, a record check. And this is what happens. You pay a little bit of money. Agency does a criminal background check. There's many different types of background checks. Some are just background checks for uh, the state of Alabama. Some are national background checks. And even those are dependent upon the local the states sending to the FBI that information. And some states don't even participate. So, again, it's, even the data you're getting is not that, you know, not that solid. But, but here's, here's the thing. You might, get a, you might get a record check of somebody, and you go, oh, this person in in 2010 was convicted of um, disorderly conduct. And the person, you go, well, you know, what happened here? No, let's say not disorder, a battery. So you ask the person, hey, what happened here? It was a battery conviction. We're doing our background checks. We're going to be aggressive and making sure we're protecting our kids. And so the person says, oh, man, that was, that was 2010. Yeah, it's before I became a Christian. Uh, I was big, you know, I was a big drinker, and I was at a bar one night, and I started drinking a lot, and I got into some words with some guy, and we ended up having a fight, and I, I, I punched, I knocked him out, and I feel really bad about that, but he, he, uh, he reported to the police, police arrived, I was taken away, and I eventually uh, took a plea to a battery charge. I owned up to my offense, and I took a battery charge. Now, what many people will do there is go, oh, okay, well, thank you for clarifying that. 
Um, and they won't even think twice about the, whether or not what was just told to them is true or not because they'll go, wow, he just admitted to this crime and he gave me the background for it. Obviously, there must be, it's true. So you don't do anything more. Well, when in actuality, if you actually pulled the file and looked, what it was a sexual battery. And it was a sexual battery that was reduced because maybe the victim wasn't able to testify or was too afraid to testify. And so the prosecutor worked out a pretty pitiful plea bargain where the person pleads to a, a, a battery. And you're going, wait a minute, this has nothing to do with a bar. There's no bar fight here. This is a sexual offense against a child. But you, you, they're not counting on you following up with that. They're counting on you taking their word for it. Um, so I, I want to encourage you that when you do these background checks, um, again, take them for what they are, but if you need to follow up with them and delve deeper into them, yes, asking the offender what it is might be a good idea, but corroborate that. In fact, what I would say is corroborate it first before you meet with the offender. Because if you pull the file and it's actually a sexual battery offense, and you sit down and go, what was it? And he gives you the story about the bar fight. I mean, that's very clear what, what's just happened. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's a great, uh, I mean, it's not great, but it's a, it's a very powerful example. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, a, that's, that's a real life example of what we're talking about. So it does, it does happen. Uh, and I, I knew enough about, as a prosecutor, knew enough that I would, um, you know, sometimes you have to plea bargain cases. And sometimes I hated to do this, but sometimes I actually had to plea bargain sex abuse cases to a non-sex abuse offense. Uh, oftentimes that was only when, you know, the, it was either that or dismiss the charges. And I wanted to make sure that the court had some type of supervision over this person. So if that's what it took, but that can be really misleading. And that's one of the things I didn't like about that is, wow, the, on his record is going to say, you know, misdemeanor battery, when in actuality, this was a felony sexual assault. Um, so, and, and here's the thing. Most jurisdictions, you can follow up on this stuff. Most jurisdictions, if you need to follow up and call, what you do is you contact the law enforcement agency in which this allegedly occurred and ask to, to get a copy of the report. And if the case is closed, most jurisdictions, it's, 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 it's accessible, and they'll send you that. They may redact names, but you can look at it. And again, yeah, it, does it, can you, do you have to do this with every, if every person applies? No, I mean, you have to be realistic here. I'm saying when you do the background check and something pops up, that causes you some concern. Follow up. Don't just take that applicant's word for it and their explanation for it. Because it may be true, but what if it's not? What if you end up with a situation like that and you don't realize that until a year or two later? Um, so good... good. Uh, yeah, it, it, it all... As a prosecutor, I was able to get everything. So I could, I could get a report that says what they had ever been charged with and whatever they were convicted. Most of the background check... Um, uh, organizations and what's available to them is just convictions. Now, yes, then you have to go around the, you know, you go, you say, okay, we've got the, we got the background check information. Uh, it says, you know, misdemeanor battery conviction in uh, Volusia County, Florida. Um, let's, let's double check that. And I'm going to call the clerk of the court or the Volusia County Sheriff's Office and get, get more information. Um, so here's the thing. We only got a couple minutes. Uh, I think that, um, and I will leave these, like I said, leave this PowerPoint with you all. But there are other ways to get some information about those who are applying and those who cause concern. Use technology to your advantage. I mean, the Internet has a lot of really...
stuff, but the internet can also be used to your advantage, okay? Um, if somebody shares something with you about some type of past, uh, Google their names. I mean, have any of you ever Googled your own name? Come on, admit it. Okay. Uh, but, but Google, you know, it's amazing. I, found, I had found stories of individuals that I was prosecuting by putting their name in a search engine, and the news story comes up. Now, it doesn't happen very often. But oftentimes it's even more, re, more helpful when somebody has given you a story, like, oh, this is what happened and this is what happened, and you Google it to see whether or not it ever made the news, and sometimes you'll find that. Um, there's other ways to, uh, you know, I had a, uh, and this is, this, is a, um, this is something you probably wouldn't do, but I remember when I was prosecuting a case in Florida, and the defendant was about a 63-year-old man, and the, two, the things he did to these two girls who lived next door were absolutely reprehensible. And I remember thinking, you don't, but he had no criminal history. And I remember thinking, you don't wake up one morning and do this type of stuff. This has been going on. But how am I going to establish that? How am I going to show that? So I called my investigator in. I said, listen, uh, this guy has no criminal history. So that doesn't help. But what I do need you to do is this. I need you to find out every place that this man has ever lived, every jurisdiction, and contact the local police department and the sheriff's office and just ask them for any records they have that contain his name. I don't care if it was, you know, loud music, complaint. I don't care. I just want every record that has his name on it. And he was like humming, hemming and hawing. And I'm like, really? You really want? Yes, please do that. Well, a month later, he comes back. He goes, wow. I said, what? He goes, well, I contacted the uh, police department in, in a particular town in Pennsylvania. And... Um, they gave me this one-page report from, you know, like early, mid-80s. And all the one-page report says is a 15-year-old girl comes into the police department and reports that her stepfather has been sexually abusing her. And she identifies the stepfather as this person. And I said, well, did, did they do anything else with it? I mean, did you find any other reports? Nothing. We find nothing. We don't even know if he was ever charged with it. And I said, is the name of the stepdaughter, do we have that? He goes, Yes. So I said, okay, can you find out where she's at? And he hems and hawed. And, okay. Well, this was like 15, 20 years later. And uh, he finds out that she's living in West Virginia. And I pick up the phone and I call her. And I identify myself. And I tell her that I'm prosecuting this particular person. There was silence at the other end of the phone. And I said, and we found this report where you came in. Long story short, uh, police never believed her up there. They didn't do anything with it. Um, she comes down to Florida. She testifies in my trial. Um, and I think, I mean, we probably could have convicted him without her testimony, but oh my goodness, uh, it, it sealed, the, sealed the conviction for us. And you know, one of the powerful moments of that trial was as she's leaving, I mean, as the jury's leaving, one of the jurors called me over and I said, yes. She goes, um, can you give me a message to that young lady that testified today? I said, sure, what do you want me to tell you? She says, could you just let her know that somebody finally believes her? So here we are, we convicted this guy for offending these two sisters, but what we were able to do is, I think, something pretty amazing in the life of this woman who had felt that her entire life nobody believed her, and for the very first time, a group of, of, of adults looked at her and said, we believe you. That all came back from, I'm not saying anybody can do this, it all came back from realizing we need to just do a little bit more work here. If I'd never decided to, if I'd taken that background check and said that's sufficient, we'd have never never found her because um, it wasn't sufficient for me. Utilize social media. When you're, when you're talking about uh, applicants for youth group or, or whatever, and even those who are cu- currently serving in your youth groups as volunteers or employees, social media is amazing. It's amazing what people put on social media. 
what they what they say. Uh, if you are a, if, if you've got a the twenty five year old person who wants to volunteer for the youth group and you ask for their Facebook, first of all, you can make a condition that that you have to access it. But you go to their Facebook page and you look and and he's got five hundred friends and four hundred and fifty of them look like they're twelve and thirteen year old girls. Now that's an extreme example. Uh, that's a red flag, okay. But more importantly than that, and again, you can't do this with everything and to, the, to what extent, but what, kind of po- what are they posting? What are they tweeting? It gives you a little bit of a sense of an insight. What's their Instagram? What kind of pictures are they putting on Instagram? I mean, it's amazing the things that you can tell. Now, again, they may be posting things that are, are, you think is, are, are not correct or they shouldn't be posting. And, and I'm not saying that you're concluding that these people are child molesters. What you can conclude because the church is making the decision through its policies, is you can conclude that you're not a right fit for volunteering in this group. Sorry. It's just not a right fit. I'm not going to conclude that the fact that you have 450 of your 500 friends are 13 or 14-year-old girls. It it makes me concerned, and I might want to do something else with that issue. But it's enough for me to say it's just not a right fit. Do, Do most of your tweets and do most of your Facebook posts or your Instagrams or Snapchats, do they... Your 25-year-old, do they sound like you're 15 or 16? That makes me concerned. It makes me concerned that this person's not a good fit to be serving in that area. Um, okay, I'm going to end there because I want to I honor my, my, uh, my commitment in getting you all out. Uh, I will, like I said, I'll make these uh, available to you. There's quite a few other slides on here, but I'll make them available for you, for the churches to look at and, and review. Um, I just want to let you know that as, as grace uh, moves forward... Um, a, I would really appreciate your prayers. Uh, you know, we're doing, as we move forward in the next three years, we have, we have some initiatives that we're working on. One of them is this church certification initiative, which I think is really, really critical um, because there's nothing else out there like that. Second is curriculum. We're just about finished with a seminary curriculum on child advocacy studies that we think it's best to start training pastors in the classroom rather than on the job. And so we've got some experts that have come together. Um, some uh, Actually, uh, one of them is a PCA pastor. Two of them are PCA pastors. Come together to help us develop, I think, this fantastic curriculum that we're going to make available to seminaries. If you have connections with seminaries that you can influence them to... to include this in their in their curriculum please do that we have a, we want to we would like to take t- maybe the first four or five uh, seminaries who are interested and and actually underwrite the cost of the first year of of teaching this course so they can't they can't even use the excuse that they don't have the money to do it um so that's one we were we were developing we want to develop a conference a national conference where we come bring three groups of people together survivors of abuse church leaders and Christian organizational leaders, and those who are working on the front lines on this issue, social workers, therapists, and any police officers who are Christians, bring them together. Plenary session will be dealing with issues that will affect all three of them, and then have tracks for each different uh, population of people. But one of the reasons I really think that's important is I want pastors and church leaders and organizational leaders to actually connect with survivors. And I think it's important for survivors to connect with pastors and church leaders and organizational leaders who actually care and let them meet somebody who actually will listen to them because so far maybe nobody's listened to them. And I think in an environment like that, that can happen. I think a lot of, a lot of good can come out of that. We're going to continue to do uh, consultations. We do that all the time with churches uh, who are calling us going, what do we do in this type of situation? We just learned that we have a sex offender in our church. We've been, he's been here for 10 years. He's been volunteering the youth. What do we do? I'm thrilled when they, five years ago, we weren't getting many calls from churches. 
I think because they were trying to do it themselves. We're getting more and more calls now, and I'm really encouraged by that. The younger generation of pastors I have found seems to get this issue more than uh, more than the older generation, and that gives me that gives me some hope. And the other area is, is care. How do we better care for survivors? We can't be everything to everybody. Uh, so how do we link survivors with really good resources? One idea that we've come up with, I don't know if it, it I think we're, we're going to make it work, is I went to a conference not too long ago, a small conference of just missionary kids who had been sexually abused in the mission field. And they had one night, they had a, uh, a room with all of their artwork. I'm not an artist, so I'm like, I didn't even want to go. They're like, they're going to talk about their artwork and, and share about how that artwork helped them process their abuse. But I thought, yeah, I better go to this. So I went, and I was really moved that night. A, because... The artwork, some of it's pretty intense, but some of it's just absolutely incredible. And to hear their stories behind it was amazing to me. And I remember, I have a friend of mine who was abused on the mission field. I met her during the, one of our investigations. Tough, tough life. Has come back. She's got four kids. Uh, husbands, they've divorced. He met her on the mission field, too. He has his own issues, which, you know, anyway, divorce. She's living in a trailer. She's just trying to survive. Barely trying to survive. But she does some really neat artwork. So I remember, I remember texting her. I said, hey, those paintings that you had at the, at the uh, conference, can you take some pictures of those and send them to me? Because I'd like to just show the family. So she sent them to me and I scrolled through with the family. And I said, oh, do you ever sell anything? She goes, well, I've never really sold anything, but yeah, I guess. So I, I, uh, I showed them to my wife and kids and we all picked one painting that we really wanted. I said, would you, would you be willing to sell this? And she's like, well, sure. And I said, well, how much? And she goes, well, I've never sold anything. I usually just charge like the cost of paint and brushes. I'm like, no, no, we we're going to pay you for it. And so she, you know, she came up with some amount. We paid like twice what, we, what, what she said. But what we thought, I thought was just neat is, wow, here's a way, a very simple way to encourage survivors who have created this artwork to be able to, to showcase it. How do we do this in a way that maybe opens it up to a broader world? And so we've talked with another organization about developing actually a website where survivors of abuse can showcase their artwork. It may just be to showcase it and show it. It may be to sell it. And if we could sell it and maybe help them out, maybe the money they get from selling their painting, they can use for counseling. Anything, rather than oftentimes not wanting a free handout. A lot of times, you know, people don't like that. They're like, hey, let me just give you money. But no, let me give you money for something really amazing that you did. So just that's just an example of how how to care for survivors. So those are, those are the things we're really working on. I really appreciate your prayers for that. And then I would also, I'm, I'm getting more bold about this than I have been in the past because I, I think I have to, is we really need your, your financial support too. Um, you can go to our website, which is on the, on the material that you have, netgrace.org, and, and you can give. And I can tell you right now, um, we have one full-time employee and I get a small stipend. The money that you give goes towards this, these initiatives. Um, but we have to, though. I hate dealing with that issue, but the older I get, the more I realize if we're going to do this, we have to have that. Um, and we need, we need people and churches maybe to come alongside of us and say, we so, we so, uh, are invested in what you're doing that we want to not only pray for you, which is really, really critical, uh, but we want to come alongside you even financially to make sure that you can, you can achieve the things that God has put on your heart. Uh, anyway, thank you. Any questions as, as you all... Get ready to leave? Yes. Uh, my email is just boz at netgrace.org. Yes, it's called This Little Light. Yep. You can get it on, uh, I think you can get it on Amazon. Yeah. It's really complicated. Um, oftentimes, first of all, understanding the dynamics of sexual abuse, oftentimes sexual abuse has very little to do with sex. 
as yeah, a lot to do with about power. And so I think that oftentimes that's that's the dynamic. It's it's like a a a, a pedophile is defined by uh, by DSMV. I think it's four now or five or I don't know what it is now. Is it five? Five. Okay. Um, you know they. It's 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 somebody that yeah, it's it's like this part of their brain uh, that is is attracted to prepubescent children, and it it's obviously a a um, something's gone haywire there. And so when we think of uh, a gay person, I'm not saying gay people don't sexually abuse children. I'm not saying gay people don't sexually abuse boys. But when when we try to add some logic to okay, this person is is uh, is not is heterosexual but he's sexually abusing little boys, that doesn't seem logical to me. Well, none of this is. <laughs> it's completely haywire. And that's why we have to understand that to realize that, that uh, um, the, yeah, we don't know. I mean, I think each person is going to be different on, on why that. Some of them have been abused when they were younger as, as boys, and, and they, that's where that, you know, where that disconnect is. They, they victimize boys. Some, I prosecuted many who victimized boys and girls. Uh, what didn't, they didn't distinguish between the two, um, so it's it's really hard to make sense out of out of something that's so distorted. Anything else? Okay, thank you all for your time. Thank you for just being here, uh, Jessica. Thank you for everything you did and putting this together. Let's give her a warm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah.